Hi, everyone. This is John Pattison, and I am the community builder at Strong Towns. And I am just here to tell you that we are starting up the 2022 Strongest Town contest. We are now accepting nominations. This is one of the highlights of the year for us. We'd love it if you nominated your town. Uh, we want to highlight the great things that you're doing. Nominations are due by February 20th at midnight Eastern. So it's coming up, but don't be intimidated. The application process is not long and it is a lot of fun. So I hope to see you in this year's Strongest Town contest. I'm Abby Kinney and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City, and today I am joined by John Pattison, community builder for Strong Towns. Welcome, John. Excellent introduction. <laughs> Thanks. I probably should have mentioned that they can go to strongtowns.org slash strongest town to actually find that nomination form. <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> Key information. Uh, but thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. I, I think this is the first time you've been on Upzone before, but not when I was hosting. You mentioned that you were on Upzone when Rachel was hosting, which is why I somehow had in my mind that you had been or hadn't been on Upzoned. It was kind of a not clear to me. So I'm excited that this is like the first official Upzoned that we've done together. That's right. And ironically, I was on talking about something that was happening in Kansas City and I wasn't talking with you about it. It was the, oh, when the, yeah, that's the right. Royals were, were thinking about or maybe are still thinking about building a stadium downtown. And that as a Kansas City Royals fan, it's something I'm passionate about. Strong Towns person is something I'm passionate about. So it was a fun conversation, but it would have been great to have you there as well. I know. I wish that I could have been there for that one. Uh, that's such a crazy and interesting kind of topic that is going to continue to be in the political <laughs> arena, so to speak, for a long, long time from now, I'm sure. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> well, the article that we're covering today, I know, is also something that's very personal for you, and I'm really excited to share it. Um, it was published in an in Insider by Holly Harper, and it's entitled, I'm a single mom who shares a house with other single moms. Co-housing saved me $30,000 last year. So the author, Holly, lives in Washington, D.C. and is co-owner of a four-unit house that she owns with another single mom. She is self-employed and following her divorce was able to connect with other single moms that she knew to create a shared living arrangement that works for all of them, including their kids. The, they currently have three moms and five children living in a multi-unit house that they call the Siren House, and sharing resources has been very, very beneficial for their families. Not only are they saving money by sharing a single mortgage, but they also share home repairs and contribute to a shared emergency fund together. They are able to share babysitting duties and cooking duties, 
They pool together for personal belongings, even like kitchen supplies and a Peloton and art supplies and a cordless drill. They, they name so many different things. And they also have a lot of things that their kids share in common, too. Not only do they get to use the buddy system to you know go around the city and get ice cream and do fun things that kids like to do, but they also all share toys like a trampoline and a bike and scooters, hammocks, sleds, camping gear, all other kinds of fun stuff. So Holly says that by unlocking the power of sharing, their baseline expenses have decreased dramatically, which allows them to really experience abundance, both financially and socially. So I'm really glad to see this story getting some traction this week. It's definitely a very optimistic and somewhat romanticized picture of the co-housing model, but it does reflect this approach to housing and ownership that I think has amazing potential to be kind of part of the solution and the overall path of unraveling the current complexity of our housing ecosystem, so to speak. Um, John, you have experience in this space, which is something that I think is really interesting. Do you want to talk a little bit about your experience with co-housing? Absolutely. I love that you use the word abundance. That's a good reflection of my family's experience with with co-housing. There's some question about the term co-housing. I think experts would say that what my family does is not technically co-housing, even though we live with another family and we bought a house with another family, because it's not a multi-unit setup, whether it's like a single home or multiple homes built around a shared space. I was talking with somebody recently who started a nonprofit called Sharing Housing. She gently corrected me that what we do is co-living, um, uh, according to the technical term. But that said, we did buy a house with another family that we had been living with for a few years. Uh, we bought a house together in November 2020. We have lived with this family for several years, even before buying the house together. And at one point, we're actually living with a third family as well, all in this one single family home, because that third family was actually building an actual co-housing community right across the property line behind us. So when that was built, there are 11 cottages built around a shared space. They moved across the property line, and then that left our, our two families, and we bought the house um, our two families, but it has been really wonderful. My wife and I, we're in our mid forties. Our housemates are, I think they're both 28 years old. My wife and I have a couple kids. Our housemates have a baby. And so like we get to experience a lot of the, the, the financial benefits that Holly Harper talks about in her article, as well as the social and emotional benefits as well. Um, it's something I'm, I am really passionate about. I kind of was dragged into it a little bit by, by my wife. I was really skeptical, but I said that I'd try it. And like so many things in my life, my wife ended up being totally right. And then I ended up like doing podcasts and writing books about it. And it doesn't seem quite fair, but um, yeah, we love it. Wow, that's that's really interesting. And as I was reading the article, I hadn't actually split apart the difference between co-living and co-housing. And I'm sure there, the distinction matters for some reasons, but for certain reasons, it may not matter as much. I mean, it's it's kind of you you think about this like kind of co-living slash housing model and how that's kind of served people over many, many generations. You know, you think back about how people used to live in the past. Multi-generational housing used to be quite common before 70, 80 years ago. 
multi-unit houses were much more common to build. And I'm sure that those were built for all kinds of reasons. Maybe there was one person who owned it or two people who owned it. Um, there's a couple of duplexes. There's a set of three duplexes next to my house that actually was built by, you know, an entire family <laughs> so that all all this father's daughters could all live by each other and have their families like all living together. So, you know, even looking at older neighborhoods, you just see such a variety of different housing types that all kind of fit some purpose and very often it fits some kind of purpose that aligned with either co-housing and co-living. I think a lot of people share the experience of co-living, you know, when they're a student at the very least, although I know a lot of people who are my my age, i.e., you know, no longer kind of the typical student age, um, that that continue to do co-living and live with roommates and I, you know, you might have heard the term house hacking where somebody buys a house and have roommates living in it, or they buy a two unit house and rent out part of it. So I, I actually feel like, although it, this in the article, this is kind of framed as being something that is kind of unusual. I feel like there are, these kinds of situations are probably more common than we tend to think about them as. And they are probably just you know, a lot of the times people flying under the radar because in a lot of cases, co-living or co-housing situations may be illegal due to zoning regulations, but people are are going to live how they need to live. And so, yeah, I have a feeling that this may be more common than we would expect. Yeah, I agree. I think it's certainly more common, as you said, in years past, definitely still more common in other cultures. And I got to say, before we officially bought the house together in November 2020, I think there was and we had, you know, three families at that point. We were concerned, like, are we actually allowed to do this? <laughs> you know, are, are we going to get a, <laughs> are we going to get a knock on the door from from the city and say, wait, how many different families live here? And and you're not related um, as if our neighbors weren't looking at a side eyed enough, you know, yeah. Um, <laughs> To think we might be uh, flouting the the zoning code, which honestly we we purposely didn't look it up. Uh, we we thought it would be better to not know. Um, yeah, yeah, I know it is kind of one of those funny things. I mean, I know we've talked about this on the show before. Um, situations where you know you cities don't want unrelated people living together. I feel like there is. It's very important to kind of not micromanage living situations too heavy-handedly. The needs of people with regard to housing, especially in a, you know, quote-unquote housing crisis, we're talking about this as a crisis, um, it seems incredibly uh, misguided that we would then turn around and continue to, like, micromanage something like unrelated people living together in a structure so long as it's you know, a consensual situation amongst all the people. I I think that that's something that people should kind of decide for themselves and they can work that out through their own contracts between each other. Um, if somebody's a tenant or an owner or whatever, you know, cities with zoning regulations that stifle the ability for houses to have, have one or even multiple units in them are, 
in my opinion, just missing this huge opportunity to support kind of broader ownership options and produce greater affordability for their residents. So it's kind of a shame that that that's something that continues to um, kind of keep these things from happening or at least pushing them under the radar so that people kind of, they do it, but they don't want to talk about it too much because they don't want to, um, you know, they don't want a city official knocking on their door telling them <laughs> yeah. that they need to figure out a new place to live. Hopefully we don't put, put you on blast, John. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, we all, I feel like we own the house together now. I feel like we're safe. Yeah, exactly. Maybe there's a statute of limitations on this thing. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, so let's talk a little bit about like the financial model, because that's something that was really interesting to me. You actually found another article written by the same person that explained a little bit more about how, how that works. Do you want to talk a little bit about like that structure and, you know, if you want to share how you guys structured it and if it's the same or different kind of what are some of the things to think about when, when if somebody's pursuing a model like this? Yeah, the way that we did it was much simpler, it sounds like, than how they did it. Because, possibly because they were in D.C., possibly because it was a multi-unit uh, house that they were buying, they ended up having an agreement that made um, each of the owners tenants in common. It essentially became like a kind of a, a condo build, building. And there was a legal agreement that they had to create ahead of time that she describes as, as informal, but still with the force of law. I, I don't totally understand that, but that is a lot more complicated than, than what we did because we had a single family home where like everyone was just going to have their own it sounds weird, but like everyone's going to have their own bedrooms. My wife always says like, we share everything about the bedroom. <laughs> I think that's, what, we have to make that clear <laughs> to our neighbors too. Um, <laughs> but because it was a single family home that we weren't going to split up into different units, I, I think it made it simpler for us where we just like split the cost 50, 50. And um, we did have some of those arrangements ahead of time, but it did seem to be an easier arrangement for us um, where we are and how we were going to do it. So for you guys, like you, you guys just basically both are co-owners 50, 50 in the mortgage. Mm -hmm. That's so, right. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's a pro seems like a really simple way to do it. How does it work if somebody wanted to like, like if their situation changes and they want to be bought out, like, is that a way to do it? Because that was something that I was wondering about this three unit or four unit model where when you have a condo, I guess, theoretically, that makes it so that one person could like, instead of um, like putting money into escrow, I guess, to eventually buy the other person out, if somebody changed their plans um, with a condo, they could just sell it or, you know, sub sublet it um, or, you know, depending on what the terms are. So is that something that you guys have talked about a little bit? Yeah, we had to think about all of this ahead of time. We had to think, yeah. you know, what if, as you said, what if somebody's situation changes? What if they need to move? What if the relationship sours? Which I hope, I obviously hope that it doesn't because we love each other so much. Um, my wife and I were actually going to buy the house ourselves. And our housemates, um, Emily and Elijah, came to us and said, we never want to not live with you. Like, what if we bought Aww. the house together? <laughs> I know, isn't that the sweetest? Yeah. Uh, Kate, Kate and I were talking about it later. She said it feels like we were proposed to. And yeah. the, the thing is like, that was, that was actually our heart as well. 
So I hope like our, we want to grow old together, like our two families and my, my wife and I will grow old a lot earlier than they will. Um, but we had to think about that situation. We had to think about, you know, when we die, how is like, how is inheritance yeah. going to work? Um, yeah. And so in terms of like, what happens if the situation changes, the other family has the right, like the first right to kind of buy out the, the other family. It just would get so complicated if they sell it to somebody who's not a good fit for, for Kate and me and, and our family. And, um, it could, it could get complicated pretty fast, but we, we do have some of those legal agreements in place that, that we, that we brought to a lawyer and a lawyer kind of, we worked with a lawyer friend of ours to kind of make sure everything was, uh, made sense. But I have to say kind of like to your, to an earlier point, co-living or co-housing puts home ownership within reach of a lot more people. My wife and I moved to our town of Silverton 12 years ago and just instantly fell in love. Like we'd never wanted to live anywhere else. Our housemates grew up here, but the housing market being so close to Portland is pretty wild. And so buying the house by ourselves for Kate and me, that would have made it a stretch, but we could have done it. But honestly, with where Emily and Elijah were at that point, they could not have afforded to buy a house in the town that they grew up in and they didn't want to leave. And so coming up with this, this arrangement that is, as you pointed out, like unorthodox today, but fairly common um, over the course of history, not only allowed us to buy a house and not stretch our finances to the breaking point, but also allowed Emily and Elijah to stay in a town that they love, that they grew up in, where their families are. Um, and that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. Yeah. I feel very strongly that if we are to consider ownership as being an important part of the American experience, um, then we need to kind of like rethink these models around how people can get into ownership. And the reason why I think the condo approach is helpful in that regard is because it does kind of create a formal structure um, that allows people to you know, they could sell their, their unit if they want. And, you know, it, it kind of formalizes the co-living or co-housing situation so that people can kind of own small bits of multi-unit housing um, or even apartments. Although we've talked about how in certain situations, condos can go terribly wrong if deferred maintenance is something that that happens. So it's really best suited for kind of small scale, missing middle type of apartment buildings or houses. So that, that that's something that I wish we would take more seriously and really start to think about how we can expand ownerships for people, especially in places that are becoming more expensive. And it feels like just about every place is becoming more expensive right now, just with how crazy things are in the economy. I think it's a, it's a kind of complicated housing <laughs> ecosystem that is going to kind of work its way out the other side. And, and who knows what all of this looks like. But the most important thing is that we're all able to kind of adapt to this, the complexities of the market right now. And I being able to not only enable this type of housing from a zoning perspective, but also to structure financial models um, around 
making this more accessible and easier for people, I think is very important. And I think what you're doing, what Holly is doing is uh, kind of proving the concept, right? And people are starting to prove this concept. And I, I, I have a feeling that people will try many different structures and then over time, hopefully we start to kind of formalize a quote unquote normal way of making this type of thing happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I was, I was surprised. So initially when I saw the headline co, you know, co-housing saved me $30,000 last year, I was, I, I thought that number does not jive with my experience. Obviously way different contexts. But then I sat down with my wife last night. I said, okay, like how much did co-living save us last year? And conservatively, $25,000 because we were splitting, we were splitting the mortgage. We remodeled our, our kitchen, uh, which if, if my wife and I bought this house alone, it would look exactly the same now as it did when we bought it <laughs> because uh-huh. yep. <laughs> we wouldn't have had the margin, you know, to to remodel the kitchen, to brighten it up, to get the yeah. new door and to do landscaping and all of these things. Um, and but that improves your quality of life and emotional absolutely. state as well, right? I absolutely, mean, yeah. There's benefit to that. Yep. Yeah, the, the fi- financial benefits, um, the, the social and emotional benefits that she talks about. Because even when we're like, we remodel the kitchen largely ourselves we did the landscaping ourselves. All of that work is shared. The vision is shared. It It is so much easier to do like work outside that I might not be excited about doing, but doing it with friends and with my wife, like it's like, we're all in this together. It, it just gives you, you're sharing not just the money, but also the energy um, and time as well. Yeah. That's really beautiful. That's like a very beautiful way of living that, it, you know, is it maybe should be more common for people. Uh, w- when I t- describe our living situation, what I often hear is that sounds great for you. I could never do that. And I think that it, I think that it's true that for some people, this kind of arrangement wouldn't work totally fine. Like I totally, I didn't think it was going to work for me. So it may not work for everybody, but I think it actually would work for more people than realize. And so I like that, you know, that we're, along with Holly Harper, like kind of a proving the concept, at least to, you know, for our neighbors and and folks who are listening to this podcast. Yeah. And, and maybe there are people who are listening to this podcast who have a long-term roommate that they imagine living with into their family age and old age. And you guys could own property together. You don't have to rent forever. Um, it, it's a it's a great option and you guys are do you guys are proving the concept and that's really fascinating. And did you see that in her bio that the co-owners, the, the co-founders of their house have also started a small business? They, no, they started, I didn't. they started, she doesn't talk about it in the article, but I noticed in the bio that she and the co-founders of their house have started a business. It's a bubble tea shop. So they've started a little neighborhood business as well. Wow. And, and again, like, I feel like I don't know, obviously her, her specific situ- situation, but when you're sharing some of the costs around housing and you're getting to know one another and the, you know, learning what the, you know, the, the skills and talents and experiences that people are bringing, then, you know, potentially you have additional margin where you can go out together and start a small business or do, do something like that out in the world. 
I thought that was a, a neat little addendum to their story. That's fascinating. Well, that is how magic happens, right? I mean, it's like the friction of bumping into people and, and engaging with one another on a regular basis. Sometimes great ideas come out of that. So that's, that's wonderful. Um, okay, well, I think uh, we'll leave it there and we'll move on to the down zone before uh, we finish this show, which is the part of this show where we basically share anything that we've been up to lately, anything we've been reading, watching, listening to. Um, so, John, I'll, I'll pass it to you. What have you been up to? Well, before we started recording, I said I felt a lot of pressure with this because this is actually <laughs> my favorite part of of Upzoned. Um, you and Chuck are often reading or talking about these really cool kind of deep things. And occasionally the alien, uh, you know, occasionally extraterrestrial <laughs> stuff. Hey, that's um, cool and deep, right? You're right. You're right. And smart, <laughs> I would say. I read that Avi Loeb book that Chuck talked about last year. Um, but like, I wanted to come on and say, oh, you know, I just finished, you know, Finnegan's Wake or something like that. No, I didn't yeah. finish Finnegan's Wake. But I did come up with something I want to talk about and recommend. I'm working on a new book and it's a follow-up of sorts to Slow Church. And as there's a mi- very, very minor sub-thread that runs through the book that involves Notre Dame, the, the cathedral in Paris. And it's so minor, I should not be spending as much time as I am reading about Notre Dame, but I find it completely fascinating. Uh, So I'm reading like four different books on Notre Dame, books on Gothic architecture, a book on like the the idea of the cathedral. But what I want to recommend is because by coincidence for me, the cover story of this month's National Geographic is about the efforts now to rebuild Notre Dame after the fire of April 2019. They spent the first, well, first of all, like talks about the heroic efforts of that night to save, to save the structure, to save the building. But then over the last two years, they've had to make sure that the the structure is sound, that it's not going to collapse. And they've just, as you can imagine, there's been a lot of cleanup, but now that that's done, now that they feel safe with inside the structure, they're beginning the restoration process and hoping to have it done before the Olympics in Paris in 2024. And what I, what I find fascinating, and of course, it's National, Geogra- National Geographic, so the, the photographs are beautiful. Um, but what I found very interesting is that even just like the, like what counts as restoration, like there's a philosophical question about re- what restoration is and what should they restore it to. Um, the I think the French government has kind of made the decision that it's going to restore it back to the 19th century um, uh, version of itself. But over the last 800 plus years, Notre Dame has been a, a living building. It's gone up in different phases. It's changed. It's been left abandoned for 40 years and then brought back. Restoring it is not like a simple question. And I found the article gets into some of that. And I found that really, really interesting. So it's the cover story of uh, the February issue of National Geographic, Notre Dame rebuilding an icon. Very, very fascinating. Yeah, that's very fascinating. I actually, I hadn't thought about that that situation since like the accident happened. So that's really, really kind of interesting to think about what does it mean to preserve something um, versus our, our built environment evolving over time and kind of being this, this like living thing, right? Right, yep. 
Wow. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly it. That it gets into that. And even people who are like the the preservationist in Paris have different philosophies of what this would mean. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, that's a really good you? one. I I don't really have um I feel like the past few weeks like I've just been like heads down working and just have not done a lot of like me time stuff. But I am really excited that um, I actually just got word that we'll, I'm going to be speaking for Congress for New Urbanism conference that's coming up. And I've never gone to one of these conferences before. So it's happening in Oklahoma City this year. And I've never, I've never spent any time in Oklahoma City either. So I'm actually really excited. I just... Um, registered for it today. So, <laughs> so I guess that'll be my down zone. I'm really, I'm really pretty pumped. I'm going to be uh, doing a, a panel with Monty Anderson and Bernice Radel talking about kind of like the power of engaging small scale developers in your community and the importance of that ecosystem. Because I think so often the conversation is kind of focused on what can the government do to enable this stuff to happen? But even if you had the best, you know, zoning code and the best building code and all the right uh, people on the public sector side involved, you still need people to do this work. Um, and that's, that's, it's very important to find ways to kind of build up that network and to make sure that people know that they're not like siloed. So that's what we're going to be talking about. So I'm kind that of excited. That sounds amazing. To, I, I haven't thought through it more than that, but it's just an, a topic that I feel very strongly about and that um, I'm excited to kind of like pick Monty's brain and Bernice's brain on that as well. That's great. Uh, some of the Strongtown staff will be there for CNU. Um, we're also we're doing a staff retreat at the same time. Uh, awesome. I hope that I hope that we get it worked out so that I can go to your your session. And and you were you were saying that you and Chuck are going to record. A podcast, yes. right? Yep. Um, I have no details about how okay. that's going to work, but count on it. We will okay, definitely do a live podcast uh, from Oklahoma City. So that sounds awesome. I look forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. It's something uh, a little bit of traveling to do. And I, I'll probably, uh, I, I usually rent a car when I travel. So um, the, I, I have a, car rental place by my house that's like probably a mile away and I always walk up there um when I'm traveling for work and they always give me like a like a BMW and <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about am I allowed to to be excited about that <laughs> I think so it's, I think you're just being honest cool. that sounds great I, driving yeah. from from driving from Kansas City to Oklahoma City and a BMW it sounds pretty great yeah, I know. The first time it happened, I, I rented like a Kia and then I got there and they were like, we don't have that, but we do have this red sports car. And I was like, dang it. Yeah, I guess I'll take it. <laughs> it was much nicer than a Kia. So, all right. Well, thanks so much, John. I'm glad we had a chance to do this and I appreciate you coming on Upzone this week. Oh, this is my pleasure. In my old role as content manager, I got to listen to every episode and write about it for the, the blog. And um, so I, I've, I've been a, a, a passionate listener, um, obviously. Uh, so it feels really good to be here.
All right. Well, hopefully we'll have you on again. Um, and I will talk to you soon. All right. And thanks, thank Abby. you, everybody. Yeah, thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of UpZone. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thank you. Thank you.